Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, Managing Editor for Shadowproof.com and the curator of the Dissenter newsletter. Welcome to the Dissenter Weekly for December 2nd, 2021. It's going to be with you. And please, if you're not a subscriber of our YouTube channel, take a moment now to click that subscribe button and you'll be the first to know when episodes of the Dissenter Weekly are posted. You can also subscribe to the Dissenter Weekly show by going to Spotify if you prefer an audio version. There we post it as an audio podcast. So uh, with that, let me uh, get into the stories for this week. Our first story involves a migratory bird whistleblower. Earlier in 2021, we covered a press release from Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, which described how a whistleblower at the United States Bureau of Land Management faced termination for, quote, raising concerns about the potential for devastating impacts on birds of prey and other wildlife from a massive Wyoming oil and gas project, end quote. This environmental analyst named Walter Lowen was not fired, but on November 29th, peer reports that officials in Wyoming finally went forward and fired him. He was a specialist who conducted reviews under the National Environmental Policy Act for the past 16 years. Lowen objected to plans for quote, 5,000 oil and gas wells, 1,400 miles of gas and water pipelines, new roads, and electrical lines in Converse County, which is in the state of Wyoming. His concerns increased when officials removed restrictions on drilling that would affect the ability of birds to nest and breed. A two-year effort to remove him commenced in response to his whistleblowing. Those in President Joe Biden's administration claim to have abandoned the very policies of President Donald Trump's administration, which led to this retaliation against Lowen. However, Peer notes that Biden is using a process for firing employees that was adopted by Trump, even though Biden supposedly abandoned it. And Biden is putting oil and gas industry needs before the safety of migratory birds, which was Trump policy. That was Trump policy to put the needs of oil and gas industry executives before the, the needs of wildlife. And Biden has supposedly ditched this policy, yet officials are going forward with making an example out of low end. Peer is helping Lowen appeal the decision, but Lowen will have to wait until next year to be restored to his position because that is the earliest that he can have a hearing before the administrative body in the U.S. government known as the Merit Systems Protection Board that reviews these type of complaints. Cyber whistle. Tesla CEO Elon Musk sold a cyber whistle for $50 each that was modeled after the company's cyber truck. It sold out on the company's website. It was intended to mock whistleblowers. Now, fanboys of Musk and Tesla 
can suck on their medical grade stainless steel and go around blowing it for daddy Elon. Probably even use it to motivate them toward ratting out whistleblowers at the company. Let's go over the brief history of Tesla's retaliation against whistleblowers. First, in 2020, a large number of workplace retaliation complaints came from Tesla workers complaining about the lack of safety measures during the COVID-19 pandemic. Stephen Henkes, a field quality manager for Solar City, which was acquired by Tesla in August 2017, uh, learned that thousands of residential and commercial systems were installed that were defective and dangerous and could start fires. He filed a complaint uh, back in 2019 and Tesla ignored his complaints and they mounted an orchestrated campaign of retaliation. And then he was fired. Former Tesla security employee, Carl Hansen, alleged in a whistleblower complaint from 2018 that Tesla's Nevada battery factory, known as the Gigafactory, had ties to a Mexican drug cartel. There were people there who were involved in drug dealing. According to CBS News, Hansen claimed that Tesla reported against workers who uh, were trying to expose shady activities, um, that they retaliated um, against them, that they hacked into employees' cell phones and computers, and they ignored the theft of $37 million worth of raw materials from the factory. He was fired. Carlos Ramirez raised concerns about unsafe workplace conditions and how Tesla failed to report workplace injuries, including fires, explosive hazards, and toxic fume inhalation. He was fired in June 2017 from his position as, as Tesla's Director of Environmental Health, Safety, and Sustainability. Finally, the factory in Fremont, California, is apparently a cesspool of human filth that goes all the way to the top. Owen Diaz is a black man who was an elevator operator from June 2015 to July 2016. A federal jury granted him $137 million after he sued an alleged racial harassment. Workers called him the N-word, and he was told to go back to Africa. Jessica Barraza, another individual, has faced sexual harassment and has alleged nightmarish conditions where she was routinely subject to abuse. That management at Tesla did nothing to stop. NSA whistleblower reality winner's prison sentence came to an end last week, just before the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. And she is now on probation. She will be on probation for three years. Uh, she was able to participate in a conference called Whistleblowing for Change that was held in Germany, a screening of the documentary film directed by Sonia Kennebec happened, and then afterwards she joined with her mother, Billy Winter Davis, to answer questions from the audience and be part of this question and answer session that came after the film and CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou was there along with Sonia Kennebec to discuss uh, issues related to the Espionage Act, how she was treated in prison, and then now uh, deal with some of the issues she's going through while she is on probation. Apparently, 
the probation officer she's been assigned has interpreted her plea agreement to read as, uh, as, as a prohibition, to, to read into it that there's a prohibition against media interviews. And so she's faced some pushback for talking to the press. She went and uh, spoke with a reporter at Rolling Stone. This weekend, on Sunday, there will be a 60 Minutes segment aired featuring her story. Uh, and she talks with Scott Pelley, um, a very well-known personality who is part of that institution, uh, which has been around for decades here in the United States as a news program. Millions of people are going to see her. And I, I imagine that this might be good enough to get the probation officer to back off his insistence that the plea agreement prohibits her from being able to talk to the press. Uh, this is not true. Uh, people who are on probation have just as much right to exercise free speech and talk to journalists and reporters like Scott Pelley, like myself, like anyone who's working in the news media. And certainly we all want to hear from Reality Winner. So here's hoping that the probation office in which this person works recognizes that they should give up on this game of trying to act like they can control Reality Winner and determine when and how many times she can speak with the press while she is on probation. And once she wins that battle, then the next battle will be dealing with the issue of travel because she's apparently been told that she can't leave the Southern District of Texas. So that means that there are family members she's not able to go visit and see in the country. And it also means that she's going to be essentially confined to this geographical area in Texas for three years. It's an, another kind of a prison sentence, even though she is not in the custody of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons anymore. That's something that will need to be challenged. And first and foremost, I expect that after the 60 Minutes segment airs on Sunday, we'll hear a lot less about how the probation office thinks she cannot talk to the media. Ian Fishback was an army officer in the 82nd Airborne Division who objected to the torture of prisoners by U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. He alleged prisoners were held in, quote, extreme temperatures, stacked in human pyramids, and deprived of sleep, end quote. And that this was done to help officers extract intelligence. Sometimes it was for the amusement of soldiers. Despite my efforts, he said in a letter that was written to Senators John McCain and John Warner, I have been unable to get clear, consistent answers from my leadership about what constitutes lawful and humane treatment of detainees. I am certain that this confusion contributed to a wide range of abuses, including death threats, beatings, broken bones, murder, exposure to elements, extreme forced physical exertion, hostage taking, stripping, sleep deprivation, and degrading treatment. I and troops under my command witnessed some of these abuses in both Afghanistan and Iraq. He wrote this letter in 2005, and it spurred members of Congress to pass legislation in 2005 called the Detainee Treatment Act. 
but the moral injury of what Ian witnessed and the lack of accountability and justice in the country he fought for was too much for Ian to bear. In September, according to the New York Times, Fishback was involuntarily committed following a public disturbance, arrest, and ordered to receive treatment with antipsychotic drugs. He died in an adult foster care facility in Michigan on November 19th. He was only 42 years old. According to his family, Ian faced, quote, many challenges and many of us felt helpless. We tried to get him the help he needed. It appears the system failed him utterly and tragically. There are many questions surrounding his death and the official cause of death is unknown at this time. We can assure you that we will get to the bottom of this. We will seek justice for Ian because justice is what mattered most to him. End of statement. A country that deludes itself into constantly believing it supports veterans did not support Ian. And now Ian has left our world. But I'll say, as will now be a regular tradition when we bid farewell to whistleblowers in the United States, that we'll meet again, Ian. We don't know where, we don't know when, but we know we'll meet again some sunny day. Another tribute we have is for Phil Saviano. Portrayed in the Academy Award-winning film Spotlight, Phil Saviano came forward in 1992 to describe how he survived childhood sexual assault that was committed by a priest named David Holly at the Worcester, Massachusetts Diocese. His story made front-page news, and in 1996, access to Holly's files led to a settlement with the diocese. He became the first survivor to settle a case without restrictions on speaking freely about what he had uncovered in his lawsuit that related to the Catholic Church and its practices. In August 2001, according to a bio on his personal site, the Boston Globe's Spotlight investigation team contacted him. They were digging into horrifying allegations against a priest named John Gagan. Phil introduced reporters to the history of Catholic clergy abuse. Phil was involved with SNAP, the survivor's network of those abused by priests, and expanded the organization's work during this time. By 2002, the Catholic priest abuse scandal was a massive news story. In late 1991, Phil was sick with AIDS. The following year, he went public with a story of abuse. Through newly available protease inhibitor medications, Phil managed to survive. He had recurring health issues for the past couple decades, including in 2009, when he learned he needed a kidney transplant and received one from a woman who had survived sexual abuse by a nun. He died of gallbladder cancer at the age of 69. Phil believed the names of abusive priests should be known to everyone in the world. He said, do it to launch a new era of transparency. Do it to break the code of silence. Do it out of respect for the victims of these men and do it to help prevent these creeps from abusing any more children. And we say to Phil Saviano that we'll meet again. We don't know where, we don't know when, but we know we'll meet again some sunny day. And finally, a brief update on Julian Assange's case. The WikiLeaks founder is awaiting an appeal decision that could be imminent. The High Court of Justice is likely to issue a decision on the United States government's appeal this month. 
could be days, could be a week, week and a half, but we are anticipating that this decision will be coming soon. And in the meantime, I put together a roundup that covered some journalism that's been done recently on the Assange extradition case from Yahoo News and also by more independent journalists like John McAvoy and Pablo Navarretti and also Richard Medhurst. Richard Medhurst obtained classified documents on the extradition case against David Mendoza, who is mentioned in a submission to the High Court of Justice that the details and, 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 and the attorneys for Assange recall how the U.S. broke its pledge to Spain to allow him to apply and, and that they would approve his application for a prisoner transfer from U.S. so that he could serve his sentence in Spain. That's something that's incredibly relevant to the Assange case because in order to get around the issues that they face related to the U.S. incarceration system, they have said, well, we would allow Julian Assange to apply for a prisoner transfer to Australia since he is an Australian. And so this prior case shows that an individual applied multiple times and was rejected when he asked for a prisoner transfer, even though in that extradition case, part of the reason why he was extradited was an agreement that he could make this application for a prisoner transfer. And the U.S. said, no, we just said he could apply for a prisoner transfer. We didn't say we would grant the prisoner transfer, which is obviously very deceitful. And so we didn't, we have no reason to trust the U.S. as it goes before the High Court of Justice and makes claims about how Julian Assange could serve his sentence in Australia instead of the United States. And that's ignoring the fact that this prosecution is illegitimate and shouldn't even be happening. So we shouldn't be having a conversation about where he would serve a prison sentence. The charges against Julian Assange should plainly be dropped. There's also in the reporting from John McAvoy and Pablo Navarretti for Mint Press News, uh, details from Ayator Martinez, who is a lawyer representing Assange in the criminal case that is before the Spanish courts. And we get details about uh, UC Global and uh, the extent to which they were feeding false reports to U.S. intelligence agencies that made it seem like Julian Assange might be associating with uh, Russian officials or Russian individuals in order to draw him deeper into the hysteria around uh, Trump and Russia that was existent and, and rampant in the media uh, during Donald Trump's presidential administration. Uh, the details here um, get into what happened with the diplomatic passport and how Ecuador tried to assign him to Russia and he rejected it. And then um, the through UC Global, US intelligence was able to learn that in December 2017, he was trying to leave the embassy and go to another country uh, where he could be a diplomat, a, 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 take a diplomatic post as a representative of Ecuador. So uh, that is this week's show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching the Dissenter Weekly. If you're not a subscriber of our companion newsletter, the newsletter 
for keeping on top of whistleblower stories and also updates on Julian Assange's case. Go to thedissenter.org, become a subscriber. If you become a paid subscriber, not only are you going to get what we produce regularly, but you'll also receive our exclusive postings and you'll be making independent journalism on these types of stories possible. You'll be funding this critical work. So uh, thank you and we'll see you around.